0: This is the word of the Lord. It says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, and he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, thank you. Father, this is a uh, cultural thing that uh, was happening back in Corinth, and uh, we don't have some of those same things in our Western culture today. So we look at this and we say food and we just don't understand, but Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that the principles that underlie this are so apparent in our culture today. I pray that you would help us to see that it's not just about learning things, it is about loving one another, it's about living the good news of the gospel out to others So today, Father, I pray that you would take us back to Corinth and help us to see what Paul was saying and then take those principles and apply it to us today and help us to do this for the glory and honor of your Son by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, one pastor began this section by calling it am I my brother's keeper? You remember back in um, Genesis chapter 4 where Cain was having some difficulties with his brother um, Abel, and he had a lot of anger towards his brother um, Abel. And then what he ended up doing was this. He ended up killing his brother Abel, even after God had said to him, be very careful that your emotions don't get the better part of you. But what Cain had a problem with, was he had a problem with a disregard for other people. He just didn't care about anyone else but himself. He was interested in only himself. He could care less. And that spirit that destroyed Abel through Cain is the same spirit that we all have within us. We can be destroying others because of our own anger and struggles within our own hearts and lives. So when God asked, "Where is your brother Abel?" Cain says, "Am I my brother's keeper?" There was some there was some sarcasm, there was some um, brokenness that was there as he shared that line. I want you to consider that line today, "Am I my brother's keeper?" See, I believe that what Scripture teaches is that each one of us are our brother's keepers. We're supposed to be, we're part of a family of brothers and sisters in Christ that we are spending time here on earth and we are going to spend eternity with one another. So it is vitally important how we treat one another, how we treat one another in the way we think and how we speak and how we act. So let's talk a little bit about what was happening here. We've gotten to the first part of um, Corinthians and Paul was dealing with some levels of problems, contamination that was happening that was coming into the church, the contamination of the world that was outside that was coming inside this church. And Paul has been dealing with that in a series of chapters as we've gotten to this chapter. He was talking about sexuality. He was talking about lawsuits among believers. He was also talking about marriage and singleness and all of these things that were happening and how they were being influenced by the world outside and now how it's coming into the church. And Paul was also trying to deal with some levels of confusion that they had. That they had some questions and concerns and they couldn't just understand what was it that God would ordain for us to deal with and how should we do with that. And so as he's been going through these chapters he's been dealing with and he begins this next section which is actually a rather long section. It begins in chapter 8 verse 1 and it goes all the way to chapter 11 verse 1 and he's talking about this idea of uh, the contamination that we have of what was happening with pagan idolatry was talking about love of other people and knowledge. The knowledge that we have, the love that we have for other people and then how we deal with idols. So that's, that's what Paul is dealing with in this section. And you can see the section begins with this verse now considering food offered to idols. Now let me tell you a little bit about what's happening in Corinth. Corinth was a A city with a number of temples that were around. And these temples were all around. And within the temples, there were restaurants, forerunners of restaurants. You would go to these temples oftentimes to eat. And so as you would go to the temple to eat, what would end up happening is as they began the meal, they would offer a sacrifice to the god of that temple And so now they would offer the sacrifice to the God of the temple. Now, remember, there was no refrigeration at this time, so they were not able to put their meat in a refrigerator. So once the animal was butchered, and then it was separated, and what they would do is they would separate it into three sections. The first section they would separate it into is the portion of the meat that would be burned to their God. There was another portion that was given to the priest the false priests of that temple, and they would eat theirs or they would send their portion out to markets. And the markets that were closely connected to the temple, you would get meat and they would sell that meat there. Now it was pretty cool because what would end up happening is this, it was cheap meat. You know, everybody's looking for a bargain, right? So you've got the main butcher over here, but then you've got the less expensive meat over here. So people of the town that were counting their money would oftentimes go to these butchers to get the meat. But that was meat that was sacrificed to idols. And then there would be a portion that would be given out Um, And you would have in just fellowship. Let's say we were having a fellowship later and there would be food that would be offering in a Bible study or a fellowship. And you may have taken that meat in and now you're dealing with it. So these three portions, the portion that was burned, the portion that was given to the priest, and then the portion that was sold. And there were a number of people within the Corinthian church that had come out of this paganism. They had come out of this lifestyle. They had spent their lives worshiping this kind of God. And and they were spending their lives worshiping this God and then realizing they came to Christ and they realized this is just foolishness. I don't want to go back here anymore. And so what they would do is they would leave that lifestyle and now they were coming within the church. But there was a problem. And there are two people, if you heard, strong people and weak people, within the church. And Paul uses this illustration of the strong people, these people that possessed a knowledge that the food was nothing because the idols were nothing and the worship that was happening in this church was not real worship because there was really not a real God. They possessed a knowledge. But there was a second group of people that were weak in the fact that they were less mature they may have possessed a general knowledge that these gods were nothing, but they still had some struggles because they were connected and from that pagan worship. And Paul is dealing with this. Now apparently, the church had sent Paul a letter and said, what do we do about food sacrificed to idols? And the strong people are probably the ones that sent Paul the letter. And they probably assumed that Paul was going to say, well, Eat what you want, have at it. You weak people are stupid. That's not what Paul says. What Paul actually says is radical. What Paul says is that you have liberty, but love should influence your liberty. Love should impact your liberty. There are freedoms that you have as a believer, but love should supersede it all. So let's look at this chapter and see if we can work our way through it. Paul begins with a challenge in verse 1 through 3. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know all of us possess a knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but knowledge builds up. He begins in verse 1 by saying that we all have a basic knowledge, the Corinthian people were struggling with the fact that they thought they had a high knowledge and they tended to look down on other people. And that's oftentimes what happens is as somebody finds themselves gaining a knowledge, what they tend to do is to look down. And what, what Paul is starting with is this. I want you to know that the knowledge that you have is supposed to be a corporate knowledge. He says, we here know that all of us possess knowledge. In your version, you may actually see the phrase all of us possess knowledge in quotation marks. The assumption is that Paul is actually taking a quote from their letter to him and he's putting it right in his document. And he says, okay, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Paul is asking you to remember that knowledge is not just for yourself. Knowledge is supposed to be shared with other people. It is not just for you privately. It is for the community of believers. And Paul is just reminding you that knowledge is so important. It is. But he says, I want you to consider this. Second, it's not just that knowledge is for all of us, but knowledge can lead to pride. There are often times that some people will find themselves getting so overwhelmed with getting more and more knowledge. And as they were getting more and more knowledge, what they end up doing is they forget that this knowledge is supposed to help other people. And they, they start to become insensitive, and they start to overlook other people, and they start to put other people down, and diminish other people because they don't have your same type of knowledge. And Paul is saying this, that you need to be very careful that if you have a knowledge that is puffing you up, causing you to become arrogant or prideful, looking down on others, it is a wrong type of knowledge. So if you start with the theory that knowledge is just about me then it's going to lead you to the potential that knowledge is going to puff you up and make you arrogant. But then that leads to the third thing that Paul says. Love is primary. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, if anybody knows Paul... They know that Paul is not minimizing uh, knowledge. Paul is over and over again telling us that knowledge is so important. He says that you cannot grow in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ without knowledge. You need to know the word of God. You need to know it deeply. You need to be in Sunday school. You need to be in a men and women Bible study. You need to come and listen for the word of God and let it eat you. And you eat it up. It's so important. But what, what Paul is saying is this. That knowledge, as important as it is, is secondary to love. When Jesus was asked what the chief commandment is, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And and then love others as you already love yourself. What, what Paul is arguing here is that we learn and we gain knowledge not just for ourselves alone and that he is telling us that we're learning, our learning alone, if we are not thinking about community, will lead to arrogance in our lives and our, our learning is always secondary to love. Hold your finger there and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to further that point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the love chapter. All of us, uh, you know it, right? And you've heard it mentioned so many times. And, And we often jump into verse 4 where it talks about love is patient, love is kind. But... Remember verses 1 through 3, it says this, For if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love... I am nothing. Do you see it? The, the the knowledge, the faith that you could have immense knowledge and immense faith, but it is, if it's separated from love, it's missing. So Paul's challenge to them is this: First, your knowledge is supposed to be community knowledge. Your knowledge, second, is supposed to. If you do not think about community, it will lead to arrogance in your life. Third, your learning and your knowledge is always going to be secondary to love. But back to verse chapter 8, he also says the fourth challenge. He says this. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, verse 2, and he does not yet know it as he ought to know. Paul argues that our learning is always limited. It's always limited. There are some of us that believe that we know it all. You ever sit down with that type of person, the know-it-all? It's like, I already got that. You can't teach me anything more. And if you ever have a person that has ever come to a place in their lives where they have become so blinded to their need to learn, we should be lifelong learners, lifelong. We should be taking in his word. We will never understand All of God's word this side of heaven, because of our sin and because we're finite, we are limited. And so our knowledge is limited, and that should produce a greater level of humility in our lives. What Paul is saying is this, when you get to a place where you imagine you know something, you don't really even know what you know. And Paul ends with this. He says that you're learning, and the purpose of your learning is to love God. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, real knowledge is communal. Real knowledge is going to keep you from pride and actually humble you. Real knowledge is going to bring you to love other people. Real knowledge should produce this humility that is, as you start to think about the gospel, it should humble us. When we, when we think of the holiness of God, that should break us and bring us to our knees. When we, when we think of the, the adoption that God has brought you into his family, that should reduce you to, I cannot imagine. It shouldn't puff us up. It should bring to levels of humility, and it should bring us to a greater desire to honor God. See, knowledge or doctrine should produce doxology. It should produce praise out of you. And Paul's argument is this. He begins with this challenge. He says, you need to be very careful with the knowledge that you possess. Now, I would assume that this must have shocked the strong people, because the strong people are writing a letter to Paul, and he's expecting that he is going to condemn and put down these weak people, but he doesn't. He starts by going against the strong people. It's like, what is he talking about? Now, I would expect, if it were me, that he's already challenged the strong people, now he's going to continue his challenge of the strong people, but that's not what Paul does. Paul moves from the challenge to the consensus. In his consensus, he says in verse 4, look at what he says in verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offering to idols, we know that an idol, quote-unquote, is no real existence and that there is no God but one. See, now Paul, I think, is going to the level of agreement. He is saying, okay, let's go back to what we can agree on, guys. And he's saying that, you know what, as I go to this passage, I see what you're saying, but let me tell you what I agree with. That's a pretty good place to start. Paul is going to say, I'm challenging you in this area, but let's talk about what we agree on, the consensus here. And we are all in consensus, and Paul was in absolute consensus with these um, stronger brothers in two areas at least here. He says this, first, there an idol has no real existence. Once again, in my version, it's in quotation marks. So, in all likelihood, that was in the letter that they wrote to Paul. And Paul says, I can agree with you that an idol has no real existence. There is no Apollo. There is no Aphrodite. There is no Zeus. There is only one God. So, Paul says, I can agree with you on this. The gods of the pagans are nothing, these idols are nothing. If you read Psalm 115 in and, and Isaiah, it, it talks about the, the craziness of idolatry. That Especially in the Isaiah passage, it talks about you take a block of wood and you chop down a tree, and then you take that wood and you make a fire with it so that you can eat your food, but that's the same wood that you're going to worship. It's craziness. What Paul is saying is this, that idolatry it's not real. And Paul can agree with that. I can agree. Paul secondarily on a second level says I can I have a consensus and I can agree with you doctrinally on the next point. There is no god but one. One god. Monotheism. That we it goes back to the Shema of the Old Testament. Their hero Israel, the Lord your god, the Lord is one. One god. And so there aren't many gods that are out there. There are not many lords that are out there. There is one God. So Paul says, I can agree with you. I I have a consensus with you that even though I'm challenging you on this, I'm conceding on these areas. So important. Now, Paul, it's interesting in this section, um, Paul then goes and talks about God, these so-called gods, and he says in verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. It's like, wait a minute, Paul, didn't you just say that there's only one God? Didn't you just say that there's only one Lord? But, but Paul seems to be contradicting himself, but he's not. Paul says these are so-called gods, Out in the world today, there are so many quote-unquote gods and so many quote-unquote lords that people are looking and inventing ways of coming to their God. In Romans chapter 1, if you get a chance this afternoon to read it, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end, it talks about that humanity, that God has given humanity a knowledge of him through creation. That as you look in creation, God has revealed himself to us. He's so gracious that even if you've never read a Bible, God has revealed himself to humanity to say that there is a God. And what people have done is that that creation, that God should be pointing to God, they have taken that creation and now they've made it their worshiping idol. And Paul is arguing here that you can create a God out of almost anything in this world. And and so it is pointing to the fact that these gods that people are having, virtually anything in the world can be um, worshipped. And he talks about many gods. These gods are the leaders, or the ones that you would come to so that your needs can be met. And the Lord was the mediator, the one that would get them to this god. And what he was saying is this, that out in the world there are many gods. You can look at all these temples around And there are many lords, many mediators that can get you to those gods. But he says, yet, and he goes back to the doctrine, verse 6, for us, he goes back to the Trinity, that there's one God, three persons. And yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist The Father is the source of everything. I want you to think about, for some of us, we grew up in homes where we didn't have loving fathers. And when you hear the word Father in the the Bible, there is something that rattles you and you struggle with it. Because when you think of a father, you think of that earthly father. But I want you to think of a father that loves you, that nurtures you that protects you, that defends you, that wants to provide for you. That is the father that we have. The heavenly father loves you. You're a part of God's family. One of the great things that he's given us in salvation is the fact that we are brought into his family, which is absolutely and totally amazing. He says the father, that father, that God it's from whom all things are. God is the great architect. He's the great planner. He is the one that is the commissioner. He has sent out his son. And then what he did, he went from God, the Father, and then he goes to the Lord, the mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the creator through whom all things are created. You can read that through the book of Colossians and talk about how Jesus Christ not only creates all things, but he sustains all things. He's the upholder of all things. He's the maintainer of all things. And through whom all things we exist. All the gods that are around are nothing. There really is only one God. So Paul concedes. He says, I can have that consensus with you. So Paul goes to the challenge, then he goes to the consensus. Now Paul goes to this level of the confirmation. I want you to confirm this. I want you to hear this. I want you to acknowledge this. In verse 7, he said this, However, not all of us possess this knowledge. There were some Christians within that congregation that didn't have that full and complete knowledge about God. They had a general knowledge, they had enough knowledge to be saved, but, but they were still struggling in their pagan life, rid of their things in their pagan lives, and, and they were struggling. And and Paul was saying, you need to recognize that we're not all equally sanctified. That, that when Jesus Christ saves a person, every single person in this room that is saved is equally justified. That before the foot of the cross, every one of us is righteous in the sight of God. That there is no condemnation, no guilt any longer. We are all equal when it comes to justification, but we're not all equal when it comes to growth in likeness. There are some that are stronger and there are some that are weaker and the stronger should help the weaker people. And Paul says, you cannot believe that everybody possesses the same knowledge. You're missing it. What's the knowledge? The knowledge that these idols are nothing. And he says, but, but for some, these, not, these new Christians, these converts, these recent converts from paganism out of the world into Christ, they still struggle because of their former association. The former association with the idols. See, these idol temples, I talked to you about the fact that they're restaurants, um, but, but a lot of business things were done in these temples. A lot of political activities were done in the temples. If you were going to have a wedding, you would oftentimes go to the temple and have your wedding feast. You know, if it's somebody's 50th wedding anniversary, you would go and do that in the temple if they did those type of things. So it was this temple, these false temples that were around, which were a corporate source of social gathering. And it was at these places where these people are growing up in these families where they're worshiping these gods and they're coming out of it, they are still struggling with these associations. It got me thinking about a lot of the counseling that I will do, that um, a lot of times people who have come out of lifestyles, maybe broken homes, abuse, pain, maybe, maybe it's, it's places that they have gone to in the past, or things that they've done in the past, and they've, they're associated with their former life. And, and they've had to remove themselves and run away from those former things because those former things trigger them emotionally, trigger them in their lives. You could have a general, you ever know this in your life, that you have a general knowledge of truths, but when the rubber meets the road, there is something that happens emotionally and you get triggered. It's like, where did this come from? I think that's what was happening to these People. They were being impacted by the struggles. And before you start to think down about these people, how many of you have ever thought you heard something in your house and you looked under the bed? How many of you sitting in bed, laying in bed at night, know that you locked the door, but for some reason you got up and locked the door again? Right? All of us have these, these things that it's like, well, weird thing. I know I locked the door, but why do I have to get up and do it again? I guess in some ways, and maybe that's a foolish way, but in some ways, I think that's what was happening with them. These associations with their past have been so deeply wired in, psychologically into their minds that even though they intellectually may have known that these idols are nothing, there was something that was drawing them back and they were afraid to go to that association. And so, what Paul says is this because of some of their former associations, they eat food as really being offered to an idol that when they go to that pagan temple or when they're, they're sitting in your small group and you pull out a, a lamb chop and they look and they say, where'd you get this? And I got it from the temple over here. There's something that happens within them. They get triggered. And they, they have this conscience thing. They, they are the strong, see nothing wrong with this, but the weak are highly affected. They're troubled by this. They're, they're disturbed. And for them, it triggers the memories of their past life. And it seems that they're accepting idolatry, but even greater than that, it seems to them that they're endorsing idolatry and they struggle with it. And Paul says, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Defiled, they they feel guilty, they feel contaminated, they feel fearful, miserable, they're shaken to the core. Conscience is an interesting thing the conscience is this wonderful gift. Now, I told you earlier that God had revealed to humanity um, himself in the person and work of Christ. Um, he also revealed himself to humanity, all of humanity, in creation, the created order that is there, Romans chapter 1. But in Romans chapter 2, it tells us that God has also given us a conscience, that every single person, whether they've read the Word or not, whether they've sat in a church or not, they have a conscience. And it is this internal warning system of whether things are right or wrong. One pastor gave this illustration of um, an airline in 1984 that the airline crashed in 1984. And they got the black box after the crash, and they listened on the recording. And the warning system was going, pull up, pull up, pull up. And, and the people, the pilots, ignored it. They said, shut up, and they turned off the warning system. And the plane crashed into the side of the mountain moments later. And that warning system, whether it's like a fire alarm, let's say the fire alarm is going off right now, we would normally... Sit down and say, "Something's going on, and we should check into that. That's what the conscience is. The conscience is your internal warning system that God has given you. It tells you that there may be a sense of right and wrong, and all of humanity has it. And the problem is is that when somebody goes against their conscience, they're going to tend to feel guilty. It's an alarm that goes off. We hear it, and we should respond. But what happens if the alarm was going off, like for those pilots? and you ignore it or let's say the fire alarm is going off right now and we ignore it over time what happens is you start to get desensitized to it and as you get desensitized to it you start to ignore it and then other alarms are going off and you continue to ignore it and what paul is saying is this this is what was happening in some ways to these corinthian believers the young believers their conscience was saying deep down that there's something wrong And if we were to go against their conscience, they would be sinning. Paul continues by saying in verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. So Paul is saying, I need you to confirm this, that not everybody has the same wisdom. Not everybody is equally sanctified. There are some within our body that will eat this particular thing, and they will feel a level of guilt... And that is a dilemma, even though the food means nothing. Now, Paul gives his caution, verse 9 and 10. Here's the caution. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul didn't put it in parentheses or in quotation marks, but I almost hear when he says this right of yours, I almost hear a little sarcasm. I almost hear a little disdain. I could be wrong. But take care, he says, I want you to be very careful that this perceived right of yours does not become a stumbling block. It does not place an obstacle in front of your brother. It doesn't create within this brother the possibility that they're disoriented, that it trips them up, that they're confused, that, they, that they've lost hope or peace. Be very careful that you do not destroy the peace and joy and hope of other believers. Be very careful. Be very careful that the knowledge that you have, which is supposed to be used for the community of believers, you're not using this knowledge to attack other people. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it is right to do it. Paul is saying. And Paul says this, here is the caution, for if anyone sees you who have this knowledge, knowing that idols are nothing, eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, encouraged means to be emboldened or enticed or influenced, to go against his conscience? If his conscience is weak, to eat the food offered to the idol's. So Paul is saying this, that I want you to be very careful in your liberty, you need to be thinking love. That what you do in the words that you speak and the actions that you do are being seen by other people. And you have a powerful influence in people's lives, Paul is saying. That even as you're eating in the temple, other people can be seeing that and can be encouraged to do what is wrong. The Bible tells us in Romans that it is sinful to go against your conscience. See that warning system that God has given you? Even if your warning system is faulty, even if the alarm was going off outside and we find out there is no fire, it's a warning system. And if you ignore that warning system enough, then eventually you're going to open yourself up to greater sin. So, Paul says you cannot go against this conscience. You want to encourage them. You want to edify them. You want to teach them the knowledge so that they can grow in a greater relationship with God. But you'd never encourage somebody to go against their conscience unless it's sinful. And this is not sin. See, the big issue that causes most of the divisions in churches today are not black and white issues, they're gray. They're not right and wrong issues, they're neutral. This was clearly neutral. You could eat the food if you want. You don't have to eat the food. This is not you can't sleep with another person's wife. That's not what it's saying here. That's black and white. This is not you, you can lie or you can't lie. That's black and white. This is whether I can eat this food in this temple or not. That's gray. And for some of us in this room, we know that it means nothing, so we can eat it and have no problems. But there are others in this room that will be tripped up because of their former association. And Paul is saying, I need you to be very cautious that the way you live your life has a powerful influence on other people. Jesus ate with sinners. It's not going into the temple that's a big issue. Jesus had prostitutes around him. He had tax collectors around him. He was called a friend of sinners. We're called to have those communal relationships. But for some of us, we have to break away from those people or those places or things until we have grown stronger in our lives. And and Paul is arguing that you need to be very cautious not to push a weaker person into a position where they may have to fall. So then Paul goes to the consequence the consequence is here. He says this in verse 11 and 12. And so, by your knowledge, once again, he, he, he focuses on your knowledge. It's not all of our knowledge, it's your knowledge. Your knowledge, it's, it's personal knowledge, it's your freedom, your knowledge, stronger person. This weak person, who has less knowledge, is destroyed The consequences of me just giving in and not thinking about other people and giving in to my liberty and not thinking about loving other people is the consequences that weak people can be destroyed. The word is here is in the present tense. That means it's ongoing. Destroyed means ruin or um, destruction. And what Paul is saying is that as you are doing these things that you think you have the freedom to do, You were creating a stumbling block and creating such chaos and confusion for your weaker brothers and sisters, and it lacks love. And then Paul brings him to the foot of the cross, and he says, the brother for whom Christ, what, died. He says, I need you to recognize this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life. Greater love has no one than this, what? Than to lay down his life for a friend. I can't give up a T-bone steak for my brother and sister when Jesus Christ was willing to give up his life for all of us. So bring, Paul brings him back and he says, your actions are unloving. He says in verse 12, he gives them three bullet points right after another. Thus, You are sinning against your brothers. Now, I'm not sure here, but this word is in the plural. Now, I'm not sure if he's just saying that we're sinning against a number of different people or if he's saying I'm sinning against this individual and it has a ripple effect to others. I think that's what it is, that I have sinned against my brother in the way I've acted, but that action has now had a ripple effect on other people. So I'm encouraging my brother to sin because he's a weaker, to go against his conscience. I'm not only sinning against him, but I'm creating a pattern for other people, other brothers. This is a family issue. It's a ripple effect that's happening. And then he says, not only am I sinning against my brother, I am wounding their conscience. It's striking a blow against their conscience. Instead of encouraging and edifying them, I am destroying them. Then Paul says, then you've sinned against Christ. See, I think the stronger person thought that they were giving the weaker person greater freedom. But in causing them to go against their conscience, and causing them to, instead of edifying them and teaching them truth, instead of lovingly and patiently working with them They were trying to get them to change a behavior very quickly. It was bringing about their destruction. And, And by doing so, it was wounding them. It was breaking them. It was sinning against Christ. He brings them right back to the cross again. Your sin against your brothers was a sin that Christ paid for. So Paul ends with the conclusion. He says in verse 13, Therefore basically, as a result of everything that I've said, if food, this is the meat sacrificed to idols, makes my brother sin or stumble, violate his conscience, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's funny that Paul now brings himself into this congregation. He brings himself into the conversation. Paul hasn't been, he's been talking about you the strong or you the weak, but now Paul ends this section by bringing himself in. He inserts himself as the example. He says, I know that food offered to an idol is nothing because idols are nothing, and I know that there's only one God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I know that, but I also know this, the T-bone steak matters less to me than loving you. So if you don't give up your liberties, you are potentially distorting the gospel, and you're hurting other people. If you are making people change externally, you're becoming like a Pharisee or a Judaizer. And what Paul is saying that I want you to love them, love your brothers and sisters. Think of this as a family. There are so many gray areas, so many things that we have to deal with, but as a weaker brother, instead of causing them to stumble, my love should influence my liberty. My greater motivation should be a love for God and a love for others. So we are our brother's keeper. And what Paul is arguing is three words I want you to consider as we close. Learn. Learn as much as you possibly can about God and his word and the gospel. Learn, love. It's not enough to learn these passages. You need to love God. It should draw you to a greater love of God and a greater love of others. Learn, love, live. Live out the gospel. And Paul's argument is the argument that we are, called here. There's so many gray areas in our lives. You're free to do something, but not if it offends another believer in Christ. Does that mean that I can't confront a person in their sin? No, absolutely not. If they're sinning, I am called, Matthew 18, to confront them one-on-one. Galatians chapter 6, I'm called to confront them. They may be offended by my confrontation, but I'm called to do that. That's not talking about black and white issues. talking about gray. We're not talking about right or wrong. We're talking about neutral. But if I know it's a neutral issue and I'm offending a brother and sister in Christ, I should be willing to give up my liberties because of love. So in closing, I just want you to think about So it's not meat sacrificed to idols for you. But what are the things that maybe family members or friends have said to you that offends them? I had this person I worked with years ago. And um, their spouse struggled with alcohol. And the spouse that didn't struggle with alcohol said... I'm not giving up my beer at night. This other person's got a problem. I'm not giving it up. And I said, if it's a potential temptation for your spouse, wouldn't you be willing to give that thing up to help them? No, they've got their problem. They've got to deal with it. That's, my, that's 1 Corinthians 8. That the loving thing should be I'll give this up. I'll give it up for you because Christ gave up everything for us. So, Lord, I pray today that you'd help us to think through the things in our own lives that uh, we have just been holding on to. There are some relationships in this room where just in pride, we are not willing to, to bend We're not willing to seek forgiveness from our brother or sister, our wife or child. Unwilling. And and in that, Father, we are hindering the gospel grace from spreading out. Lord, if you are convicting us right now of something that we have done that is, is hindering a brother and sister in Christ... I pray that you would help us to go and try to make things right. Lord, I pray for spouses that are here. I pray for parents and children that are here. I pray for friends that are here. I pray that you would help us to remember that if we're all believers in Christ, we're all part of your family. So remind us of the great challenge, Lord, that we need to be very careful of the knowledge that we have, that knowledge, that learning must lead to love. I pray that we would confirm once again the doctrines of our faith and it should produce a doxology in our life. I pray that we would remember that not all of us are at the same level today. I pray that we would be very cautious in the ways that we speak and the ways that we act. I pray that we could recognize the consequences that we bring into people's lives. And then I pray that we would conclude with this. We bring ourselves to the cross. Your son gave up everything for us. Help us to be willing to give up small things for others. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen.